Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. I'm coming to you via Zoom. Actually, I'm recording via Zoom. And I'm in, uh, for a change of pace, I'm in my dining room slash den as opposed to my normal garage office. I hope it sounds a little less echoey. My guest this week, a very interesting fellow by the name of Jim Poyser. Jim, playwright, environmental activist, and now an author. Jim, where are you coming from? And hi. Hi, Michael. Uh, glad to be here. I love your show, and um, I'm excited to be in Bloomington virtually um, as a result of that. Um, I live in Rocky Ripple, Indiana. I'm usually on my back porch, but I was afraid that if I was back there, an occasional uh, plane might disrupt the conversation or the great heron tends to fly by squawking in its pterodactyl manner. So I moved inside so it would be a little bit uh, quieter for our conversation. This is part one of a two-part interview with Jim Poyser, environmental activist, playwright, and now an author. His new book, The Last Actor and Other Stories, just released this month by Wordpool Press. Join us next week for part two of this interview. I didn't know the gray herons made such a such a big racket. Yeah, they're they're quite loud and prehistoric sounding. Well, you would know something like that because uh, among the many things you've done in your life, you're an environmental activist. As a matter of fact, way back in 2013, you were named Hoosier Environmental Council's Environmentalist of the Year. So this is a huge part of your life, the environment. Yeah, it was interesting, um, really around the 2005-2006 uh, period of time was when I essentially uh, decided to abandon this lifelong desire to become published as an author. Oh. Um, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the playwriting, but I had been writing screenplays and I had three novels I'd completed so many short stories, et cetera. And around 2005, 2006, I said, I just cannot do this anymore because I was getting close to that 50th birthday and I was starting to wonder how I would answer the question at age 50. What, who are you, what do you do, and what have you accomplished? Huh. And the answer was always, I'm a writer. And if I had nothing to show for it, well, that would be kind of, kind of um, a, a difficult conversation. It's all about the fabrication of identity. That's what's so fascinating, I think, for all our lives, um, but certainly for me during that period. But I'm telling you, Michael, when I gave up that self-imposed identity as a writer is when I sort of tricked myself into recognizing that the climate crisis was actually already happening and worldwide. So about 2006, 2007, I started a project called The Apocadox with my, uh, my web partner, Michael Jensen, whom I met in freshman year at IU in 1976. So we did, um, essentially, I could, we could spend 28 minutes on that. I won't do that. <laughs> we started a website that was basically a humor site associated with climate change. 
And in the midst of doing that, um, living in the middle of Indiana, I think you can be forgiven during that period of time of thinking nothing was wrong with the climate. But uh, actually, every other country on the planet except for Great Britain, Australia, and maybe a couple others were actually not even arguing about it anymore because they were already suffering the impacts of climate change. So I had this big awakening. I was in the newspaper business at that time, but I had this big awakening to climate change. And I'm fond of the analogy of the saxophone. I, I played trombone as a kid and I was pretty good at it. But, you know, by the time I got into high school, I, I guess I was a pretty insecure kid. I didn't want to wear spats and I didn't want to march <laughs> during the football games. You know, I, I wanted to be a cool kid that was in the stands and would drink, you know, uh, flavored vodka and then vomit later because that's what the cool kid <laughs> did. And, and I quit trombone, and it's one of the things I regret because, you know, I got to Bloomington, and by about 1980, 81, I was like, I figured out, my God, I should have stuck with the trombone because Paul Sturm was playing trombone and using it as an avant-garde prop. So, but anyway, you know, I've always thought, I've always admired people that have an instrument, like they're really good at a saxophone. And then that saxophone becomes the thing that actually leads them through their life. And for me, I thought that was going to be a writer. But as it turned out, that was a fabricated identity that didn't, wasn't working for me on a, on a, on a psyche level. Well, and, before, before you yeah, go ahead. too much further about that, I want to say that uh, the journalism professors of Bloomington, uh, Indiana University, would clunk me on the head because I buried the lead. The lead being here, your brand new book, you are a writer because now you're published. Your brand new book called The Last Actor and Other Stories has just been released by Wordpool Press. So there you go. Now you can carry on. Well, but it's cool to bury the lead because we created all that suspense because everybody's listening <laughs> What the heck are those guys talking about? <laughs> That's what they're going to say anyway, so don't even worry about that. Well, but the problem is I'm trying to tell the whole, the whole arc of the story. This is my first opportunity to talk about this, and I'm, I'm really grateful to you. And you're so much fun to talk to, too. So I'm just, I'm like, like a kid in the candy store of telling my, my personal narrative, which may or may not be interesting to people. But I think it's interesting to me because I awoke to the climate crisis and I said, what am I going to do? I'm going to put everything into this. And because my background was theater, I created a game show called The Ain't Too Late Show, the, only, the world's first climate change game show. And I tried to bring in humor all that I could. And uh, I tell you, I, I, I stuck to this decision to, to not uh, write. Now, uh, about a year ago, I decided I was going to get back into theater. And we can talk a bit about that because I was starting to get the itch. Now that I'm, I'm 62, I'm looking at the next stage of my life, wanting to, wanting to return to some of those first passions. But the only reason this book came to be was, was because of COVID. And oh. it's, it's an extraordinary sort of coincidence I wrote a story called The Last Actor. It's actually a novella because it's about 20 to 25,000 words. I wrote it in about 1994. And my wife, who I met at IU in the late 70s, and then we ended up moving to Indianapolis in 1986 or 87, we immediately got involved in the, in the aid crisis in Indianapolis in various ways as, you know, activists and, and, and whatever. 
And uh, so by about 1993, 94, I was, you know, sort of chewing on this idea of a pandemic. And it was, it was a little bit influenced by age, but it was also cholera, Ebola, and some others. I've always been fascinated by such things. But moreover, what I'm fascinated by is how humans respond to things you know, out there in the world. I mean, you know, obviously the COVID experience, we, we, you know, we can barely do anything right, you know? It's like, there's so much that, that, that we do wrong um, is another way to put that. And, and, and so the, the, the novella I wrote in 1994-ish was, was really the story of a global pandemic called the cold and about society's sort of inability to deal with this pandemic from an entertainment industry perspective. I wrote that and a few people read it. In fact, the, the person that connected us, Emily Jackson, a dear friend, um, reminded me in a phone call a couple months ago that I'd written this story. I didn't even know I'd given it to her. I did send it to a, a writing buddy of mine, Colleen Wells, in April. We just texted back and forth and I said, hey, you want to see this funny story I wrote 25 years ago? And uh, I sent it to her just for fun. And she started reading it and she texted me back and said did you realize i have a press i'm the editor-in-chief of wordpool press and i was like i had no idea that she had gained a leadership and ownership of this press so she said uh she finished the novella and said let's um let's publish this so it wasn't long enough to make a book so i grabbed my 10 favorite stories that i've written some of which were published in Bloomington in the 80s, in the 90s, mm -hmm. and some of which were never published, and some of which I published a little bit later in time. But this all came about because of one text to one friend whom I did not realize had a press. <laughs> now, here's a funny thing. Uh, Colleen Wells has described your, your wordplay as delicious. She says you have delicious language skills. Now, that's, that's an interesting adjective for language. What do you think she means by it? In the book, it gives me the opportunity to thank a whole lot of people. And there's a bunch of Bloomington people in there and, and people I've collaborated with over the years. People like Joe Lee, for example, the great illustrator. And Bill Craig um, was just a visionary uh, newspaper editor, and he, he let me do some pretty weird stuff in the newspaper, as did my, my friends and colleagues at Nouveau a couple years after that. Um, Bill Craig also had the vision to create a literary magazine called Breeze that I co-edited with Diane Aiden Hayes in like 95 and 96, and that was a really great, fun project that, that published some of, some of Bloomington area's finest writers like Scott Russell Sanders, Doug Hofstadter, Murray Sperber, and others. It was, a, it was, I look back on it now as a really amazing time. Yusef Komunyaka was our poetry editor. I mean, it's just like, it, wow. it was incredible publication. And Bill Craig had the vision to, to do that. And then Kevin McKinney was an, is an incredibly um, gifted and visionary uh, newspaper publisher and editor up here in Indianapolis to this day. Nuvo is uh, a web-based um, publication now. Yeah. But uh, they both they both let me run free, and it was a really beautiful thing. I mean, I published some pretty weird stuff 
over the years, there was a, a satire uh, called Zeitgeist that I collaborated with Joe Lee on. Every week I would make up a story. I guess I always really wanted to work for The Onion. So I, <laughs> got, I got to scratch that itch once a week and Joe would do a beautiful illustration for it. So maybe that's what it is, is the delicious. Uh, but of course, I mostly found myself in the position of editing other people's writing. And of course, uh, when it comes to the great writers uh, that wrote for the Bloomington Voice and Breeze and Nouveau News Weekly, there are so many. Now, uh, speaking of great writers, I, I wonder if I've got this right. I believe that you're married to a woman whose last name is Wildhack? Yeah, rings a bell, hey? Do I need to tell the listeners? Why don't you tell the listeners why I bring that up? Yeah, well, you know, my wife's mother, Margaret, whom I um, knew for many years, uh, about 10 years, 10 to 11 years, I was privileged to know Margaret Wildhack. She went to high school with Kurt Vonnegut. When he was crafting Slaughterhouse-Five, he borrowed, he borrowed her last name for that from Montana Wildhack. And it was during the 80s and a little bit into the 90s where I would, uh, because of that friendship between um, Mig and, and Kurt, I got, to, I got to spend some time with Kurt Vonnegut. You know, we wrote a little bit back and forth. Uh, I was trying to get some of my work in front of him to, to pass to an agent, but understandably, he didn't want to look at it. Right, right, <laughs> when, right. When you reach that level, plus, you know, we, we know some of the darkness in his, in his past. He wasn't the most, like, you know, cheerful guy. He was the most, yeah. one of the most brilliant and, 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 and prescient of writers, but I, I had the privilege of, of knowing him and to have some, some really nice correspondence with him that I have to this day. So that's, that solves that mystery. I was wondering if I was imagining things. But Michael, Michael, the really amazing thing along with this is I married into the family where Booth Tarkington was, was uh, the great, great uncle of my wife. If I have all these, it's like- wait, in my wait, wait. Yeah, you're making this all up. No, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I, I, I married into this family that, that they just, the literary tradition was already set, which was not necessarily the case in my family of origin. I love my family of origin, but it's not a bunch of writers. And, and so I married into this family with the, with the Kurt Vonnegut and, and the Booth Tarkington. Of course, there's lots of other writers uh, within that immediate family. Um, so to go to these relatives houses and to and to to ponder the the libraries in these these <laughs> was revelatory to me you know in the 80s and 90s i wonder was your urge to become a writer some kind of rebellion no i think i mean i i i think i kind of popped out with the with the love of reading and writing and and at no point was it so much a rebellion as it was a reflection of sort of a fantastical, I mean, I've always thought sideways and half heard things and made up worlds. And I think the, the first story I created when I was like in eight or nine years old that was original was about a scientist who mated somehow ping pong balls and, and, and uh, pool balls, you know, billiards. Uh -huh. and created, they created a hybrid ball that, <laughs> that destroyed the earth. Now, up until that point, I was mimicking the Hardy Boys and, and um, other sort of mysteries, the mysteries I read as a kid. So 
writing has has been a rebellion at times over the years as a columnist or more importantly choosing what stories to cover by um 2010 Kevin McKinney up at Nouveau had had published uh, I'm sorry had purchased a statewide magazine called Indiana Living Green which distributed in Bloomington for a while right. and he basically handed it to me and I'll, I'll always love him for this and many things but he handed it to me and he said here I know, I know this is what you want to do is to, is to, is to pay total attention to, to climate. And uh, here you go. So we had a great, we had lots of Bloomington writers like Steve Higgs that wrote for that magazine regularly along with, um, you know, writing for, for Nuvo as well. But it was, you know, the turning point uh, again was give up the idea of who you are and let's see what happens. And what happened was this longtime friendship with Michael Jensen turned into this web project that turned into a game show <laughs> and then i took the al gore uh, climate reality training in 2012 oh. and that gave me like 350 to 400 science slides to start working with and then in 2013 i was able to leave the newspaper business to uh become executive director of earth charter indiana where then my whole life became about educating uh, about climate and finding ways to create action in Indiana where there really wasn't much action going on seven years ago. Now there's, now there's a lot, but not seven years ago. Jim Poyser is the author of the brand new book, The Last Actor and Other Stories. That is being published by WordPool Press. And let's talk a little bit, you, you made some allusions to Nuvo. Nuvo Weekly was, and still is, Indianapolis's alternative news weekly, although as an online entity, I guess you can't call it a weekly anymore. Yes, well, theoretically, uh, these publications became a daily right. uh, content update by the early 2000s. You started as a freelancer at Nuvo Weekly back in 1994, and uh, you know, like uh, the man in the gray flannel suit, uh, you climbed the ladder over there. I did, and there, and there, a lot of that climbing of the ladder was because the people that were running the operation, people like Bill Craig at, at, in Bloomington and people like Kevin in Indianapolis, they just saw something in me that I did not. And to be honest, during that period of time, those were the, these kind of jobs were what I did to be as close to writing as I possibly could and put me in the position of editing. And, and so my love of words was satiated to some extent, but I still wanted to be the guy who was published, the guy who, I mean, I think when I was in my 20s, I thought I could win a Tony, an Oscar, and um, you know, National Book Award, just depending <laughs> on what, what genre I would dabble in, because I've dabbled in all of them. I've been rejected in more genres than most people know even exist. <laughs> but I tricked myself into that. And of course, you know, you, you know in my life, I, I, I had a family, I had kids, and I, I had to get a job, and usually jobs, so that I could make enough money to support my family. So, so um, it just slowly grew on me, and in fact, you know, I didn't really, I didn't even write very many plays during the time that I was a um, newspaper editor because I just felt like it was an important boundary for me to create because otherwise I'd be sort of having my 
own publication cover my creative work and that just seemed a little weird at the time so i sort of put it aside and that created um some despair and some friction and then like i said eventually i just decided to give up because it was it was careening toward um nowhere so you became the arts editor over at nuvo in 1996 you became the managing editor around the year 2000 and then you stuck around over there until 2013 so you had a good long run with Nuvo Weekly. Uh, do you miss that? Uh, that uh, that's a great question. I mean, I think I, I, I miss the people for sure, but a lot of the people that I worked with, I'm still close to today. So there were certainly things about newspaper business that I, I uh, really enjoyed. There definitely is a sense of accomplishment by putting the paper out, right? When you work on the climate crisis in Indiana, um, other than the last two or three years, it's really hard to feel like you're getting anything done. So the sense of tangible accomplishment is something that I missed uh, from the newspaper days and, and the people. And then we see how important journalism is today with the, with the, with the um, milieu that we're in and um, you know, the, 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 the winnowing of the number of independent uh, journalist outlets, is, it's all very troubling. I do have to say, I think journalism is doing a pretty darn good job right now. Um, it's hard to sometimes to watch the cable shows that are so pitched in one direction or another, but I do think, I do th think the journalists in, in the country and beyond are doing a great job. There just aren't enough of them. I'd like to point out to you something that wonderful that's growing here in Bloomington. I'll bet you know about this already. Jeremy Hogan, uh, the uh, former photographer for the Herald Times, now runs a little online operation that he calls the Bloomingtonian. And uh, he's covering local news like uh, maybe like nobody else is these days. Have you seen that one yet? No, I'm writing that down. I would love to. Take yeah, you ought to, you ought to check it out because who knows? Is this the future of journalism? It's just driven, serious, thoughtful, people who believe that this stuff has to be done. Our democracy depends on it. Yeah, that's beautiful. Check that out. I would if I were you. By the way, speaking of do you miss Nuvo or not, I'll bet here's something that you didn't miss. You received a package from a reader who apparently was not happy with the slant of Nuvo. And in that package, I guess it was a box, there were issues of the paper plus something else. Uh, what was in that box? I'm, I'm pretty sure it was, it was human shit as opposed to like <laughs> dog shit. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I opened up that box and, and, you know, to be honest, I think it was directed at Steve Hammer. Steve <laughs> Hammer was a longtime music editor and columnist for Nuvo, and he just loved to stir people up. And I tell you, he pissed somebody off and he got a box of shit in reply. But I also thought this is the perfect metaphor. You know, you, first of all, it's a free paper, right? right? But you know, here in the United States, we lead the world in opinions. That's what we do best is have opinions. Now, here comes social media to reinforce our obsession with opinions, right? It's just like no wonder we're in the crazy, crazy world that we're in right now. Um, but anyway, you know, uh, all people want to do is complain. You, you really never heard 
people compliment you back in the day. So maybe that's something I don't, I'm happy to, to no longer engage in, in the newspaper business. Cause all you ever did was just get complained at. Yeah. Whereas in, in the current business of the climate progress, you know, any climate progress we make in Indiana can, can, can mean a lot. And, and so people, uh, they, they need to celebrate more than they do, but there's a lot more positivity, believe it or not. And I tell you what, there's a lot less stress in, in, in the climate business, which is weird, but maybe it's because the task is so enormous. It just all seems absurd. You know what fascinates me? You just got finished saying a little while ago that we lead the world in opinions here in the United States, which I find interesting because I recall the time uh, back a few decades ago when the line was, don't ever talk about sex, politics, and religion. Don't express opinions on that order during a dinner party or anything like that. How do you resolve those two uh, seeming uh, uh, contradictions? I don't know. I mean, I, I think I've, I've, I, in, in my life, I have sort of let other people speak controversially. You know, as an editor, you're kind of behind the curtain and you, yeah. and you, you aid and support. And now my mission at Earth Charter Indiana is actually to bring young people to the stage to talk. Uh, I'm telling you, nine times out of 10, when I'm asked to speak, I hand it to someone else. I'm looking for a person of color. I'm looking for somebody of a different gender, which I am male, and I'm looking for a younger person. And so this is why this is a delight, because this is, this is so much fun. But anyway, you know, I just feel like that's, that's kind of what I do in a way that, that I'm putting other voices forward, but I'm supporting them uh, uh, from behind. But I also think too that that what this brings up for me is 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 how lucky I am. I live a Trump-free life. Wow. And what I mean by that is I live in Indiana and I work with municipalities principally and some counties. And we don't talk about Trump. In fact, it's not productive to talk about Trump. What's happening in Indiana is that cities are experiencing flooding, increased heat index food insecurity. This is all before COVID. Now, COVID just amps it all up, right? It doesn't matter what party you're from. If, if you're a mayor, you have potholes. And potholes are a climate impact, right? Yes. yes. The cycle is totally different. We use Purdue research. We work with IU scientists. We make progress in cities, towns, and counties. And we don't have to talk about Trump. So, so old adage of no sex, poly, you know, it's like around the dinner table. I think that's a, that's a very Hoosier thing to do. We want to, we want to be nice to each other, yeah. but it also means you can just get the job done, especially if you're not looking for, you know, a ton of glory uh, in the work too. I think, I think keeping your head down and doing, doing, doing good work and, and uh, you know, just sticking to, just sticking to the work is, is a great way to make progress. My guest this week has been Jim Poyser. He is a playwright, environmental activist, now an author. His newest book, his first book published, The Last Actor and Other Stories, that came out from Wordpool Press. Scott Russell Sanders calls it Kafka meets Monty Python. Jim, thanks for being on Big Talk. Michael. Thank you so much for this conversation. Like I said, this is the first opportunity I've had to talk about the book. And of course, because we're talking about Bloomington, that's, you know, 
two-thirds of my life right there, too. So fun talking to you. We are going to have Jim Poyser on next week's show as well, because this guy knows how to talk. I'll tell you that. This is a two-parter right here. 